Wells in the Coffee House. We read last week Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, and this is just actually coming in the wake to date this particular episode of the Taliban advance to Kabul in Afghanistan. I just saw the video of the military transport plane that was taking off, and there was just a, a group of Afghanis surrounding it, and a couple of them have, had grabbed onto the wheels and taken off with it, and then later couldn't hold on anymore and fell off to their doom. So, there you go, a conquering force, and hilariously, of course, I hate to use that word in juxtaposition to this event, but it seems apt, because the the Taliban are capable of tweeting on Jack Dorsey's platform, despite being literally in the throes of an insurrection and engaging in all sorts of horrible acts, while woefully <laughs> Donald Trump is not able to. So again, uh, like I say, that's a kind of sick hilarity in that situation. So it's kind of a, a timely thing to be talking about conquering forces as they retake uh, Afghanistan. But what I want to talk about as part of the discussion, because of the, bo the book, of course, was about the Battle of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans resisted tens of thousands of the invading Persian forces. But one idea that came to mind was because later uh, Spartan Athens would come to blows and Sparta would win that. You know, Athens, of course, being the seat of so much of our Western civilization today, all the great ideas coming from that, and Sparta, Sparta being the military power at the time that structured all of their culture and society around that idea. So they won in the end. So the question is, in the competition of city-states, who is likely to come out on top? We don't have the same circumstances that we had back in 400 or 500 BC, but we do have different strategies that different polities are using to try to gain prominence while they're jockeying in the modern world. Places like Russia and China have taken a, taken a very different tack from the United States, and you do have to wonder which one is going to work out in the long run. Russia and China have much more control over the way that their countries are run. The leaders there, the CCP in China and Putin in Russia, they are known for incarcerating political dissidents. They have much more control when it comes to speech and press. China itself recently said, and this is another terrifying thing, is that, hey, look, Taiwan, the United States isn't going to help you if we decide to invade. So they just have very different ways, at least historically, because a lot of that is creeping into the United States, of managing their populations and governing their populations in general. So one thing I wanted to kind of talk about oh, was the a comparison, like a pro-con comparison of totalitarianism and democracy when it comes to the perspective of the person leading the country. So for a totalitarian, some of the pros, they get to move quickly. They can respond to threats and do things they need to do much more quickly than democracy can. They can marshal all the resources that they have access to rather than having to worry about property rights and, and what corporations are going to do with those particular resources. They get to employ long-term governance instead of having to worry about two or four years, which is all they have until they have to get reelected. They can st sit in office for a decade and try a whole bunch of different things. They can force their subjects to do the particular things that they need at any given time, as opposed to having to respect their freedom of movement and their free choices on what they're going to do with themselves. And population control, specifically in China, obviously they engaged in population. I think that just recently changed, right? But engaged in population control and saying that you can only have one child couple, Chinese couple, 
So what are the liability? What are the cons of a totalitarian leader? The unrest. They have to worry about unrest on a regular basis. People are generally not happy with being oppressed in such a way. Since there's no other pressure release valve when it comes to people who are disaffected by the regime, they have to worry about forceful regime change on a regular basis. You know, in, in a democratic nation, voting is a peaceful coup. That's that's the option that we have as citizens of a democratic nation. But in places like China and Russia, I mean, obviously Russia has nominal elections, but you don't feel like the the people there have the same kind of pressure release when they they engage in their peaceful coup. So therefore, it'd be much more likely they'd have to engage in a, a bloody one. Body counts in, in totalitarian places likely weigh up the need to incarcerate a lot more people who aren't the types of people you ought to be incarcerating. And you might end up purging the most capable people that you have in your society because those are the ones who are most likely to question things that are going on. The ones who are more creative or intelligent, the ones who just toe the party line are less likely to be creative or innovative or intelligent in general. So you have the threat of stifling ingenuity and purging your population of the best of the people who are there. It's just a lot more easy. It's a lot easier to please the party by maintaining whatever status quo has been working than it is to start innovating or challenging the orthodoxy in any given field. So what about democracy? I mean, the pros of democracy are you get to feel legitimate because you earned it in some way. You get to rest easy for a term, at least, because you got that you were given that term by virtue of, of the vote. And you get a churning system that is pushing for innovation. So the more freedom you have, the more likely you're going to be able to get people who are motivated to do things as opposed to just doing things to appease the totalitarian overlords. Obviously, cons, it's very slow. <laughs> there are many roadblocks in the way when you're trying to get something done. You could have people in a democracy, obviously politicians, who make short-term appeals and then have to blame everything else when it doesn't work out because it's something that might take much longer than they would actually have to do it. So if you have something that's going to take 20 years to fix, you don't get to say, okay, give me 20 years to try to fix this thing. This is the right way to do it. You have to make some appeal that's going to get you elected now and get you re-elected in you know, two to four years. So you're constantly weighing that, that short-term gain versus long-term smart thing to do. And there's a lot of energy and expense that's put into just the governance of the country when it comes to a democracy. Because so many have to worry about, you know, elections and re-elections. So much of the machinery of your entire country, of each state and local government and all that, has to go into. There's so much energy that goes into just that mechanism of elections. And people could be idiots. They, they could choose, you know, the very wrong people. I think a lot of people are realizing that right now. They could choose the wrong people to put into office. And then you have to live with it for an extended period of time before you can you can fix it. And even the people who are just kind of oblivious and vote on extremely superficial reasons, maybe they never even figure it out. And so they just keep voting for incredibly stupid things for stupid reasons. So lots of pros, cons. But the big question to me is, can democracy survive long term? I saw some uh, statistic, and I didn't vet this, but the average empire lasts apparently 250 years. So if you go back through history, then that's an average. That's not a bad average. 250? <laughs> that's many generations that an empire lasts. But I wonder how more modern ones have stacked up against it. The United States has had, what, we've had 100 years at the top? About 100 years? So we'll see how much longer that lasts. But 250 years for an empire. The thing with a democracy 
it seems, is that over time, all of the spaces are going to be filled. When you're in this system, you have to try to find ways to gain an advantage over your opponent. You know, it's just like out on the Serengeti. You have to try to find means of gaining advantage. And when you have a closed system, then the means for advantage will diminish over time because people are filling all those gaps trying to figure out how to gain some kind of a leg up on who you're going up against. So it's this kind of systemic entropy in a democratic system. And when you have that, over time, eventually you're going to have to do something drastic, like destroy the system, or you're going to be locked into this extremely close war for an extended period of time. And then the fight becomes more costly. You know, over time, the fight is going to be more costly than it would otherwise be, because you have to try harder and harder to gain some kind of advantage. So in ours in particular, we have norms that are dwindling. We used to have this sense of fair play and the sense of shared and collective engagement when it comes to our country. And now those norms, all the little norms, the political norms are dwindling. One where it applies, I know we read a book about this specifically, norms that are going by the wayside. There's an analogous kind of situation in journalism where you can see how it's changed over time. So journalism, well, it started out, there was this kind of ethical thing, and this is uh, these are obviously way too clean lines to, <laughs> to put out, but in the heyday of journalism, it was a matter of, okay, we have this journalistic integrity, and we have to be objective, and that's where we're starting out from. We're just going to report whatever it is because we're trying to get the facts out. So then from there, it became, okay, everybody reports the same stories, but there's this kind of sheen of partisanship. So on both sides, you'd have the stories reported, but they would kind of add their little lacquer to it and just give it a little bit of a bend in one direction or the other. And then it became that they'd have, yes, the same stories. They'd report on the same newsworthy stories. It would have the sheen of partisanship, but they'd kind of focus on the sensational aspects because they got a little bit more attention that way. And then it was same stories and they'd kind of slather on the partisanship. And then if it bleeds, it leads became the driver then we get to calling stories that are covered by your opponents conspiracy theories being blatantly partisan and we're all about to die all the time. And that's, that's the area we're in now. I'm not sure how much further it can go. But it's the same thing with politics. So initially it was, okay, we have opponents. Our opponents are misguided, but they're sincere. And we're just going to try to demonstrate why they're misguided. Then it was, okay, they're wrong, just outright wrong, but they're sincere. Then it became they're wrong and stupid, and then it became they're deliberately spreading falsehoods. After that, it was uh, they're deliberately spreading falsehoods and contribute to extremism in some kind of circuitous way. Now we get closer to things like they are themselves the extremists, even though they're merely using words, and then words are violence, and now all the way to silence is violence. So if you're not towing the party line, if you're not actively participating, then you're engaging in violence. So the thing to always remember, I think this is always important, is that we are sloppy primates. We've always been such a thing and always will be until we are exterminated by our artificial intelligence betters uh, when they come along. And that was the thing. We read that uh, one book that talked about, it was from a lawmaker who had served in this, or he was a house member, I think. But he talked about how the people on either side, they used to share the same gym. They used to go to the same gym, same restaurants. They used to share living quarters. And so our sloppy primate brains would take that and that, that would soften the kinds of vitriol and hatred that we'd have toward the other side because we had that access. But that was done away with. And even within the, the broader population, and this was by internal groups within the capital that would say that, okay, you can't fraternize with people on the other side anymore. 
But even amongst the larger population, we read that book, The Big Sort, where it talked about how people are sorting themselves into partisan groups, even just generally amongst the population. So even amongst states, as large as states, but more locally too, people are starting to move next to people who agree with them and believe all the same things that they do. So we have this free system that's suffering the systemic entropy over time that long term causes a whole bunch of problems. I mean, there are some answers to this. I mean, the answer that, as you probably expect I'm going to give, is that we need to beat humility into the heads of all these sloppy primates, <laughs> is that all of them have to understand their limitations, their cognitive limitations, their intellectual limitations, so they don't walk around pretending to be absolutely certain to the point of using violence against people. And we had that with the founders. The founders built a system on humility of the governing. The government was necessarily slow and bound. They only had the powers that they were enumerated, not powers outside of that. Whereas, beginning with the Obama administration especially, but I mean before that to some degree, the idea was that the government has all the power and grants you certain rights. This was not the idea at the founding. It was, it was the opposite. But there are checks and balances. You have different branches of government who check each other, and you have a republic. So you have the, the local power in the states that gets to buttress itself up against the federal government. So all these things are humility enshrined into the structure of a government. So the question becomes, long term, will a polity that is capable of questioning its own motives and facts compete better than a polity with concentrated power and a few sloppy primates? Of course, that's a complex question, and who knows what the actual answer is. You would hope that an open society, a free society, that is going to try to sort people based on merit, which is the thing that we're fighting against right now, obviously. Virtually everything that's coming out of the educational system is fighting against the idea of merit right now as the precondition for getting anything. But if we have an open system that encourages the use of people based on merit, then is that going to compete better against a system that's totalitarian, that tries to centrally plan everything? And you definitely have to wonder who's going to win out in the end. Of course, the long, long term is just going to be the quantum computers that will be spitting out little slips of paper that say this is what the tax rate should be in Arkansas for this year or whatever. But then you have to wonder whether the quantum computers will be allocating just a little more resources to computing <laughs> as opposed to corn or something like that. So anyway, it would, that was a fun book to read. Like I said, Gates of Fire it was a novelization of the Battle of Thermopylae. I wasn't sure if I wanted to read it, but it was definitely worth it. And that was a discussion that resulted from some of the ideas that came out of it. Next, we have American Marxism. I finish it by Mark Levin. And yet again, not a very long book, but... There's just a ridiculous amount of things to, to talk about that come out of it. So I know we have a spate of these kind of books that are challenging the progressive orthodoxy, and it's much appreciated, but you worry that all of them are going to say, you know, the same things. <laughs> we just read Speechless, we'll, and then next week we'll talk about how Mark Levin did with his American Marxism. Anyway, this was Coffee House. I almost said the last Coffee House. It used to be the last Coffee House, but now it's just Coffee House. <laughs> And please, uh, like I said, we've got a Coffeehouse Corner. We've got, I think, just one article up on there. Now we're going to do another one. That's on Substack. And I have my book out that's been out for a while. It's just a, it's a comparative literature book. It's just for fun uh, where we look at amateur writers and how they, how they did with their first chapters in their amateur writing book. It makes me laugh. It, it's hilarious to me. So that's why I wanted to do that one. But otherwise, uh, you could you could send me an email if you'd like to do that. Coffee house underscore it's coffee k a w f e underscore house h a u s at protonmail 
Facebook.com, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to get off of the big tech companies because they're driving me absolutely crazy. So I'm trying to get off of them and go with some more privacy literate companies. Uh, so anyway, this is Coffee House. I appreciate it. And I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.